Chapter 37 of Faulkner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christy Carpenter. Faulkner by Mary Shelley. Chapter 37. There is an impatient spirit in the young that will not suffer them to take into consideration the pauses that occur between events. That which they do not see move, they believe to be stationary. Faulkner was surprised by the silence of several days on the part of Neville, but he did not the less expect and prepare for the time when he should be called upon to render an account for the wrong he had done. Elizabeth, on the contrary, deemed that the scene was closed, the curtain fallen. What more could arise? Neville had obtained assurance of the innocence and miserable end of his mother. In some manner, this would be declared to the world, but the echo of such a voice would not penetrate the solitude in which she and her guardian were hereafter to live. Silence and exclusion were the signal and seal of discovered guilt. Other punishment she did not expect. The name of Faulkner had become abhorrent to all who bore any relationship to the injured Alethea. She had bid an eternal adieu to the domestic circle at Oakley, to the kind and frank-hearted Lady Cecil, and, with her, to Gerard. His mind, fraught with a thousand virtues, his heart, whose sensibility had awoke her tenderness, were shut irrevocably against her. Did she love Gerard? This question never entered her own mind. She felt, but did not reason on, her emotions. Elizabeth was formed to be alive to the better part of love. Her enthusiasm gave ideality, her affectionate disposition warmth to all her feelings. She loved Faulkner, and that with so much truth and delicacy, yet fervor of passion, that scarcely could her virgin heart conceive a power more absolute, a tie more endearing, than the gratitude she had vowed to him. Yet she intimately felt the difference that existed between her deep-rooted attachment for him she named and looked on as her father, and the spring of playful, happy, absorbing emotions that animated her intercourse with Neville. To the one, she dedicated her life and services. She watched him as a mother may a child. A smile or cheerful tone of voice was warmth and gladness to her anxious bosom, and she wept over his misfortunes with the truest grief. But there is more of the genuine attachment of mind for mind in her sentiment for Neville. Faulkner was gloomy and self-absorbed. Elizabeth might grieve for, but she found it impossible to comfort him. With Gerard, it was far otherwise. Elizabeth had opened in his soul an unknown spring of sympathy to relieve the melancholy which had hitherto overwhelmed him. With her, he gave way freely to the impulses of a heart which longed to mingle its hitherto checked stream of feeling with other and sweeter waters. In every way, he excited her admiration as well as kindness. The poetry of his nature suggested expressions and ideas at once varied and fascinating. He led her to new and delightful studies by unfolding to her the pages of the poets of her native country, with which she was little conversant. Except Shakespeare and Milton, she knew nothing of English poetry the volumes of Chaucer and Spencer of ancient date, of Pope, Gray, and Burns, and, in addition, the writings of a younger but divine race of poets, 
were all opened to her by him. In music, also, he became her teacher. She was a fine musician of the German school. He introduced her to the simpler graces of song, and brought her the melodies of Moore, so married to immortal verse, that they can only be thought of conjointly. Oh, the happy days of Oakley! How had each succeeding hour been gilded by the pleasures of a nascent passion, of the existence of which she had never before dreamed, and these were fled forever. It was impossible to feel assured of so sad a truth, and not to weep over the miserable blight. Elizabeth commanded herself to appear cheerful, but sadness crept over her solitary hours. She felt that the world had grown from being a copy of paradise into a land of labor and disappointment, where self-approbation was to be gained through self-sacrifice, and duty and happiness became separate instead of united objects at which to aim. From such thoughts she took refuge in the society of Faulkner. She loved him so truly that she forgot her personal regrets. She forgot even Neville when with him. Her affection for a benefactor was not a stagnant pool, mantled over by memories existing in the depths of her soul, but giving no outward sign. It was a fresh spring of ever-flowing love. It was redundant with all the better portion of our nature. Gratitude, admiration, and pity forever fed it, as from a perennial fountain. It was on a day, the fifth after the disclosure of Faulkner, that she had been taking her accustomed ride and, as she rode, given herself up to those reveries, now enthusiastic, now drooping and mournful, that sprung from her singular and painful position. She returned home, eager to forget in Faulkner's society many a rebel thought, and to drive away the image of her younger friend, by gazing on the wasted, sinking form of her benefactor, in whose singularly noble countenance she ever found new cause to devote her fortunes and her heart. To say that he was not less than Archangel Ruin is not to express the peculiar interest of Faulkner's appearance. Thus had he seemed, perhaps, thirteen years before at Treddy, but gentle and kindly sentiments, the softening intercourse of Elizabeth, the improvement of his intellect, and the command he had exercised over the demonstration of passion, had molded his face into an expression of benevolence and sweetness, joined to melancholy thoughtfulness, an abstracted but not sullen seriousness that rendered it interesting to every beholder. Since his confession to Neville, since the die was cast, and he had delivered himself up to his fate to atone for his victim, something more was added. Exalted resolution and serene lofty composure had replaced his usual sadness, and the passions of his soul, which had before deformed his handsome lineaments, now animated them with a beauty of mind which struck Elizabeth at once with tenderness and admiration. Now, longing to behold, to contemplate this dear face, and to listen to a voice that always charmed her out of herself and made her forget her sorrows, she was disappointed to find his usual sitting-room empty. It appeared even as if the furniture had been thrown into disorder. There were marks of several dirty feet upon the carpet. On the half-written letter that lay on the desk, the pen had hastily been thrown, blotting it. Elizabeth wondered a little, but the emotion was passing away when the head servant came into the room and informed her that his master had gone out and would not return that night. "'Not tonight!' exclaimed Elizabeth. "'What has happened? Who have been here?' Two men, miss. 
Men? Gentlemen? No, miss, not gentlemen. And my father went away with them? Yes, miss, replied the man. He did indeed. He would not take the carriage. He went in a hired post-chase. He ordered me to tell you, miss, that he would write directly and let you know when you might expect him. Strange, very strange is this, thought Elizabeth. She did not know why she should be disturbed, but disquiet invaded her mind. She felt abandoned and forlorn, and, as the shades of evening gathered round, even desolate. She walked from room to room. She looked from the window. The air was chill, and from the east, yet she repaired to the garden. She felt restless and miserable. What could the event be that took Faulkner away? She pondered vainly. The most probable conjecture was that he obeyed some summons from her own relations. At length, one idea rushed into her mind, and she returned to the house and rang for the servant. Faulkner's wandering life had prevented his having any servant of long-tried fidelity about him, but this man was good-hearted and respectable. He felt for his young mistress, and consulted with her maid as to the course they should take under the present painful circumstances, and had concluded that they should preserve silence as to what had occurred, leaving her to learn it from their master's expected letter. Yet the secret was in some danger when, fixing her eyes on him, Elizabeth said, "'Tell me truly, have you no guess what this business is that has taken your master away?' The man looked confused, but, like many persons not practiced in the art of cross-questioning, Elizabeth balked herself by adding another inquiry before the first was answered, saying, with a faltering voice, "'Are you sure, Thompson, that it was not a challenge, a duel?' The domestic's face cleared up. Quite certain, miss, it was no duel. It could not be. The men were not gentlemen. Then, thought Elizabeth, as she dismissed the man, I will no longer torment myself. It is evidently some affair of mere business that has called him away. I shall learn all tomorrow. Yet the morrow and the next day came, and Faulkner neither wrote nor returned. Like all persons who determined to conjecture no more, Elizabeth's whole time was spent in endeavoring to divine the cause of his prolonged absence and strange silence. Had any communication from Neville occasioned his departure? Was he sent for to point out his victim's grave? That idea carried some probability with it, and Elizabeth's thoughts flew fast to picture the solitary shore and the sad receptacle of beauty and love. Would Faulkner and Neville meet at such an hour? Without a clue to guide her, she wandered forever in a maze of thought and each hour added to her disquietude. She had not gone beyond the garden for several days. She was fearful of being absent when anything might arise, but nothing occurred, and the mystery became more tantalizing and profound. On the third day, she could endure the suspense no longer. She ordered horses to be put to the carriage and told the servant of her intention to drive into town and to call on Faulkner's solicitor to learn if he had any tidings. That he was ill, she felt assured, where and how? Away from her, perhaps deserted by all the world? The idea of his sickbed became intolerably painful. She blamed herself for her inaction. She resolved not to rest till she saw her father again. Thompson knew not what to say. He hesitated, begged her not to go. The truth hovered on his lips, yet he feared to give it utterance. Elizabeth saw his confusion. It gave birth to a thousand fears, and she exclaimed, what frightful event are you concealing? Tell me at once, 
Great God, why this silence? Is my father dead? No, indeed, miss, said the man. But my master is not in London. He is a long way off. I heard he was taken to Carlisle. Taken to Carlisle? Why taken? What do you mean? There was a charge against him, miss, Thompson continued, hesitating at every word. The men who came, they apprehended him for murder. Murder? echoed his auditress. Then they fought. Gerard is killed. The agony of her look made Thompson more explicit. It was no duel, he said. It was done many years ago. It was a lady who was murdered. A Mrs. or Lady Neville. Elizabeth smiled. A painful, yet a genuine smile. So glad was she to have her worst fears removed. So futile did the accusation appear. The smile passed away as she thought of the ignominy, the disgraceful realities of such a process. A falconer torn from his home, imprisoned, a mark for infamy. Weak minds are stunned by a blow like this, while the stronger rise to the level of the exigency and grow calm from the very call made upon their courage. Elizabeth might weep to remember past or anticipated misfortunes, but she was always calm when called upon to decide and act. Her form seemed to dilate. Her eyes flashed with a living fire. Her whole countenance beamed with lofty and proud confidence in herself. Why did you not tell me this before? She exclaimed. What madness possessed you to keep me in ignorance? How much time has been lost? Order the horses. I must be gone at once and join my father. He is in jail, miss, said Thompson. I beg your pardon, but you had better see some friend before you go. I must decide upon that, replied Elizabeth. Let there be no delay on your part. You have caused too much. But the bell rings. Did I not hear wheels? Perhaps he has returned. She rushed to the outer door. She believed that it was her father returned. The garden gate opened. Two ladies entered. One was Lady Cecil. In a moment, Elizabeth felt herself embraced by her warm-hearted friend. She burst into tears. This is kind, more than kind, she exclaimed. And you bring good news, do you not? My father is liberated, and all is again well. End of chapter 37